uh, Caitlin from Richmond, Virginia. I was in the food industry serving and bartending for about seven years. And now I'm in a nine to five this last year and I'm making the most money I've ever made. Yet it feels like I am not uh, given the cost uh, increase for food and overall living. This is Chris from Austin, Texas. He's got three kids. I uh, work about 60 hours a week, uh, and unfortunately, it's not enough now to pay our bills. It seems like we are becoming an economy where we need at least two jobs just to make it so. I am looking for part-time work for about 20, 25 hours a week just so that I can take care of my family. My name is Kate Lovely. I'm calling from Oxford, Massachusetts. With inflation, my family is having a, a very hard time even though we are considered decidedly middle class, we're definitely picking and choosing which bills to pay based on, you know, who will give us more time. We have a three-year-old son. It definitely feels as though we're being punished for having children in this country. Our daycare bill is as much as our mortgage costs. Throughout our Price of Poverty series, we've looked at the effect of poverty on children and seniors. Now we're taking a look at inflation, something that's on everybody's mind, and its impact on low-wage workers. Inflation is near a 40-year high in the U.S., and rising costs are making it harder for many Americans to get by. According to Moody's Analytics, families are paying almost $450 more a month for the same goods and services than they did a year ago. The Federal Reserve is trying to curb inflation by raising interest rates to slow down the economy. How does that affect American families and small businesses, especially our lowest paid workers, who are often already struggling to make ends meet? This show is part of our Remaking America project. It's a partnership with six public radio stations, including WFPL and Louisville, Kentucky. Throughout the series, we explore Americans' trust in institutions and the health of our democracy. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with a whole lot more in just a moment. Let's start our conversation by hearing from small business owners in Kentucky. I'll let 1A's June Leffler take it from here. Bridget Knight arrives at Wiltshire Bakery before most folks get out of bed. I just get up early in the morning now, and when I don't want to, on my days off, I'm up at 3 o'clock. She's hammering and rolling out large slabs of butter to make airy puff pastries. But butter has gotten expensive. Susan Hirschberg owns the bakery based in Louisville, Kentucky, and she says certain food prices have skyrocketed. Eggs, dairy, grain, which are the predominant ingredients that are in our bakery production kitchen. Hirschberg sources her food from nearby farms. According to the USDA, farms nationwide have seen milk prices increase more than 40 percent since August 2021. Farm-level wheat prices are 4 percent higher, and the price of eggs has doubled. Hirschberg says she just can't expect customers to offset those costs. You know, we have people who come in for breakfast every day. They're not going to be able to pay $8 for a croissant. Wiltshire Bakery is not a modest operation. 
Hirschberg owns a few cafes, a restaurant, and a catering service. But no matter how many customers and events she serves, she says high supply costs might hold her back from making any profit. You know, for the first two or three months of prices going crazy, we just thought, oh, you know, things will level out. Let's just roll with it. And now at this point in the year, we really, we can't just roll with it because we're just going to, we're just going to be hemorrhaging. Supply costs are getting to small businesses, but so are supply chain disruptions. Jim and George owns a diner called Denali's in the old Louisville neighborhood. I remember I went a span of almost two weeks without ground beef. You couldn't find it at any of the vendors. And every time they asked, they were like, they're out right now. We don't know when the truck's going to come in, call in in a week. He says supply shortages are hard for his customers to comprehend. I would have to like distinctly like put a sign up, hey, today we are out of this, today we are out of this. And it's easy for me to sit and say that I'm just not going to sell this today. But what about the next day? What about the day after? Leisure and hospitality workers' total compensation has gone up too, which includes wages and benefits. It rose more than 8% nationwide between June of 2021 and June of 2022, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Though these are still some of the lowest paying jobs around. Where I was paying someone, say, $14, now the conversation starts at $20. Two for bros, total is going to be $20 even. During the 7 p.m. rush at Louisville's Baxter Avenue theaters, folks are lining up to see blockbusters and art house films. The company recently closed its discount theater. Manager Matt Cohorst said it was partly the victim of people watching more movies at home. I've never seen a list of like we do now where I'm looking at things that are coming out and more than half of it is actually going to be on streaming than being released in theaters. So that is something that has been a little bit of a struggle. But Cohorst says the outlook is good for the theater he's still running. We are looking forward to a big holiday season this year, starting with uh, Halloween ends. Of course, Black Panther uh, 2, Wakanda Forever is going to be probably the biggest movie of the year. Or Avatar 2, which is coming in December. So we got some good things to look forward to. Perfect. We will do um, one of those, one cupcake. Back at Wiltshire Bakery, a mom is buying macarons with googly eyes for her two kids. The owner, Hirschberg, says the bakery's outlook is uncertain. She's considering closing some of the business's four locations, and that would mean laying off some workers. Pondering that two years ago would have been absolutely devastating, but we'll see. You know, there's no point in trying to operate something that is unsustainable. Scaling back weighs on her mind daily. But what she's not willing to do is compromise on the quality of her food, something she thinks restaurants might have to do to survive. For 1A, I'm June Leffler in Louisville, Kentucky. As part of our Remaking America collaboration with WFPL in Louisville, we traveled to the city. Louisville is home to a bustling food scene, and while people working in hospitality have seen their wages rise since the start of the pandemic, they are still some of our lowest paid workers. Joining us now to talk about how inflation is affecting low-wage earners is Gina Smilik. She reports on the economy and the Federal Reserve for The New York Times. Gina, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Tim Smeeting. He's a professor of public affairs and economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the former director of the Institute for Research on Poverty. Tim, it's great to have you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Gina, what does inflation look like this year? It is extremely high. So what we're seeing right now is that 
headline inflation, so the the number that sort of groups together all the prices that we're paying across the economy, has increased. It, it prices have increased eight point two percent over the year through September. If you take out food and fuel, which bounce around quite a bit because you know those those prices are pretty volatile. If you if you take those out to get a signal of what is happening with prices, sort of under the surface, that's at six point six percent, which is the highest since nineteen eighty two. So just very very rapid, very painful inflation. And we should acknowledge that we're seeing inflation globally, but why is there such high inflation right now? You know, it comes from a number of causes, many of which are shared globally. Clearly, a lot of this traces back to the pandemic. We saw supply chains get really messed up at the outset of the pandemic. And that meant that there just weren't enough goods to go around as people were sort of stuck at home trying to buy new couches, trying to buy new computer screens, things like that. And so that's really how inflation got started. Then we had sort of the double whammy of the war in Ukraine, which really pushed up a lot of commodity prices, including those for fuel and all kinds of food products. And so we really had a couple of big shocks that pushed prices up. And as prices started taking off, it seems like they just sort of picked up momentum. And that seems to be a shared phenomenon around the world. You know, it it is the case that we don't understand what causes inflation pretty well, but it does seem like it feeds on itself. It seems like once inflation gets going, it has this tendency to broaden out and to sort of creep all sort of all through the economy. And so that seems to be the stage we're at now. We're not, the supply chains are getting better, but we're not seeing it really any big improvements in inflation. Tim, who's bearing the brunt of these high prices? That's a really good question. It's difficult. Um, for every person on the radio and for Gene and I too, um, it depends on what you spend your money on and it depends on how fast your wages go up. Uh, lower income people, however, particularly the working class, um, while they've seen some increases in their wages and their nominal wages, everyone has, their real wages have only gone up a really small amount, if at all, over the past um, year or so. So it's difficult. Um, and those people at the bottom don't have as much cushion or savings as many people do. So um, they're facing a really number of really tough choices, um, both on, on um, terms of what they can earn and can they get overtime and so forth, and paying for basics, which are extremely high, childcare, um, rent, um, utilities, uh, and so on. Well, Tim, very briefly, what's the distinction between the working class and the working poor? How should we be thinking about those terms in about 30 seconds? Okay, they, they kind of overlap the bottom. The working poor are people who are making thirty-five, dollars $50,000 a year. They're, they're just at the fringes of being poor. They're maybe within 150% of the poverty line. Just above that uh, is the working class. People who have, um, particularly, let's say, married couples who each make maybe thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars a year, uh, their total income is sixty thousand. Um, they're working hard. They're paying high childcare costs, and they're trying to figure out what to do next. One day's June Leffler visited a grocery store in Louisville to ask shoppers about their recent grocery bills. Oh well, it's kind of hurt my pockets today. You know, I I'm not able to buy everything I need to buy. I just spent like $60 and only got like five items. So, you know, (laughs) I can't come back for a minute, you know. So I feel like we all think that inflation is a fact of life. And I think we just wish that our salaries were compensated the same to keep up with inflation. 
Um, I'm on my bike, uh, headed home, and I feel like I bought the right items to save myself some money. My, uh, my food stamps went from 181 down to $80, and I had to start putting stuff back, and so I'm working with a caseworker to see if they can get it back up from $80 uh, to a reasonable route where I can actually not have to, I had to go to a food pantry for the first time. I, I don't have a lot to say about it. I have noticed that my bills are typically over $200 now for a family of four, and they used to not be. <laughs> so, um, but you know, I'm clipping coupons and watching for sales. I think basic needs are being price scouts just like gas is when we have a natural disaster. I mean, we've had people that have, you know, have good jobs and stuff, they put stuff back. Uh, they're getting rid of the little house brands that are more affordable and forcing people to buy bigger packages that they really don't need. And, and, it's, and Thanksgiving is coming up. I don't see who's going to be able to have a turkey. I really don't. I work here, but, you know, I'm in the same boat like everybody else. Now, Gina, grocery prices went up 13 percent in the past year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistic. What items have gotten more expensive? You know, when it comes to groceries, it's really across the board. You know, I think we we talk a lot about eggs and butter. Both of those have just jumped really pretty astronomically. I think butter is up something like 32% over the past year. Um, We've really seen a wide variety of food both at home and away from the home, things you eat at restaurants, getting quite a bit more expensive. That's partially supply chain issues. It's partially the sort of effect of oil prices going up and biting into fertilizer costs. It's partially the effect of the war in Ukraine, which obviously sort of ricocheted through the global grain market because Ukraine is just such a big producer of grain. You know, we're really seeing sort of this perfect storm where a lot of different reasons are causing prices for foods and prices for groceries to to really skyrocket. Tim, how do consumers, particularly people in low-income households, have to adapt differently to these rising grocery prices? Well, we there's less room uh, to change, I think, in a lot of those lower-income families. Uh, the man who talked about SNAP is important. If you're lower-income, the uh, supplemental nutrition program, formerly known as food stamps, has expanded in recent years, and it's doing a pretty good job to help people who really need help. But it's just hard looking for sales. Um, changing your your diet, not eating out as much for sure. Um, you know, trying to make every nickel and dime um, last. That's unfortunately where people are their most basic need of food. But if you really need help, we've we've got the SNAP program or the food stamp program there, and it's been expanded and it's been strengthened and it's doing a good job. But um, it's just really hard when you have to make these choices, uh, very difficult ones. Yeah, we also heard one voice there talking about accessing a food pantry for the first time. When we zoom out, Tim, how do we see consumers alter their spending patterns more broadly during times of inflation and economic uncertainty? Well, you try and find everything. You try and find things that are that are cheaper as best you can. You, you're, you're probably not going to take many plane rides or Go, go away. You you try and find uh, uh, ways to uh, economize on possibly on childcare, possibly certainly on entertainment expenses. Uh, and on the other side, you look around. You ask your employer. The labor market is still strong. You ask your employer, "Hey, 
you know, can I get a little overtime or, um, uh, I'm, I'm happy working here and I'd like to stay, uh, but I can't make ends meet. Uh, so you have to work both sides of the, of the aisle, try and get more in and, um, spend less on the other side. Yeah. That's the only thing you can do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things we've been talking about over the course of the week is, is not just people who are living below the poverty line as it's defined you know, by the census, but, but also people or families that are on the bubble. And how can an economic period like this burst that bubble for families that are just barely getting by, Tim? It's it's very difficult. Uh, luckily, the earned income tax credit increased this year, and uh, SNAP will adjust to the cost of food too. Uh, but it all comes with lags, and it's it's just very difficult. You you just have to look and take a longer view. First of all, if you have any debt, you've got to get rid of it as if you can. Credit card uh, interest rates are going through the roof. You want to avoid those payday loans and things like that. If you have any savings, you're probably going to eat into some of them. Uh, it's just really hard. Uh, it's all about what you bring in, the prices that you get paid, and what goes out, the prices that you have to pay to buy things. And you try and juggle the two as best you can. And it's much harder for you know for the working class. We're discussing the cost of inflation and its impact on low-wage workers. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Carla, who says, what profits have businesses made during the inflationary period? Have a feeling corporate profits have increased on the backs of everyday people. Gina, what can you tell us? So Carla's, Carla's feelings are correct here. Um, it's definitely the case that corporate profits have been really swollen during this period. We've seen corporate profits really shoot up. Companies have been able to charge quite a bit more than their costs have increased, even as their costs increased. I think it's really important, though, for us to think through why that's happening. And the reason I think that that's important is because it's important to thinking about how we how we solve the problem. Um, it's not the case that overnight these companies just suddenly became more concentrated or for some reason more monopolistic, more capable of, of charging high prices. It is the case that they were finding that as they sort of hiked up prices, customers were still buying and not being price sensitive and not just sort of seizing to, you know, buy whatever it was that they were trying to sell them. And so that sustained demand has been a real driver of the sort of corporate profit story here. And it's not super obvious when it's going to end. You know, I think one one really interesting industry to watch right now is the used car market where we're seeing costs come down pretty sharply for companies that are buying used cars, but they're not necessarily passing along those cost savings to end consumers just because it seems like the end consumer is still pretty eager to buy a used car. And so I think that's a good example of an industry on the cusp where we might see those profit margins start to shrink back up, but we just haven't seen the change yet. Who's driving that consumer demand though, Gina? Because if we're hearing on one end that families are struggling to make ends meet, Who's buying all the stuff? Yeah, well, so this is really interesting. It does seem that basically from the middle class on up, people still have elevated level of savings relative to what they had prior to the pandemic. And so that's the result of months stuck at home. It's the result of decent wage gains. It's also very much the result of, you know, repeated stimulus payments throughout the throughout the. Um, 
pandemic period. And so that's sort of confluence of factors. I don't think there's any one in, like key factor that has contributed that to that, but that confluence of factors has really resulted in people having the wherewithal to keep spending. Obviously, you know, we know that the poorest members of society tend to have relatively little savings. They've really sort of eaten through the savings that they amassed during the pandemic. And so this just kind of makes this situation a double whammy for them in the sense that the middle class on up are able to keep driving prices higher, even as poor people fall further and further behind. We also got this email from Patricia who says, I travel a lot for work and I am a big milk drinker. I live in Louisville, but travel to all parts of Kentucky. I find it interesting the massive price difference of a gallon of milk depending on where you are in Kentucky. Louisville, I'm paying $1.49 to $1.59, but in rural areas, a gallon is almost $4. I understand supply and demand, but the dramatic difference is crazy. Gina, how, how do we explain that gap? So, you know, this is a really interesting phenomenon that you will often see during periods of price changes, which is that places that are less served by a variety of stores tend to have bigger price increases when prices are increasing. And so we often see this in what we call food deserts, which are places that are not well serviced by grocery stores. Unfortunately, and I think as as your listener observed, those food deserts tend to be in places that a lot where a lot of people who are lower income live. So think rural areas, think sort of, you know, parts of inner cities that are heavily populated by people in the lower end of the income spectrum. Those areas tend to have less service by a variety of grocery stores. And as there's less competition, you often see that companies are able to pass on pretty much all of their cost increases without losing customers or able to, you know, as we were just discussing, jack up their profits without losing customers. And so I imagine that is at least partially behind that phenomenon. The other thing that's a big part of this story at this moment is transportation costs have been quite expensive. And so that could be factored in here. It may be the case that those rural areas are harder to get the milk to. And so as a result, you're seeing bigger price increases. We're talking to New York Times economic reporter Gina Smilik. Also with us is Tim Smeeting. He's an economist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. The pandemic gave employees a lot more bargaining power as employers were desperate to fill positions. Some of these employees didn't just job hop in a bid to improve wages and conditions, they unionized. Addie Atkins is a barista at Heine Brothers Coffee in Louisville, Kentucky. Last month, all 17 locations voted to unionize, including Addie's. And Addie joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So Addie, why did you get involved in these union efforts? Um, So around the time that the pandemic started, um, I had some coworkers who had mentioned it. Um, We were really trying to push for hazard pay at the time. Um, And it never really came to fruition, unfortunately. Um, But of course, you know, we all love our jobs. Uh, We love the sense of family that we've developed at these locations. So we didn't want to just call it quits. Um, And so when I heard word this time around, um, of unionizing again, I was absolutely on board. Um, and I just truly believe that it's something that really gives us that are in the stores dealing with this every day, uh, a voice and a seat at the table. And when you talk about seeking hazard pay, was it specifically connected to exposure to coronavirus? Yes. 
Now, we reached out to Heine Brothers Coffee, where Addie works, and they sent us this statement, quote, We have been clear that we respect the process and will bargain in good faith with the union. We look forward to a collective bargaining agreement that will be great for team members and that will enable Heine Brothers Coffee to continue to steadily grow their business, end quote. Addie, you're going to be part of negotiating your union's first contract. First, how much do you make an hour right now? Um, so the way that our wages are set up are a little funky. Um, at my base hourly wage, I make $11 an hour. Um, however, we do have a credit card tip average guarantee, um, that is $4 an hour. So in total, we're looking at $15 an hour on my checks. Um, but the issue that lies there and that is that tips are solely based on the generosity of our customers. Um, so it's not a really surefire way to make sure that we can all pay our bills on time. And if people are are feeling the pinch in their own pocketbooks, I would imagine those tip averages probably dip alongside that tightening of the belt. What wage changes are you and your colleagues seeking in this contract? Um, I think ultimately we're all wanting to see a higher base wage. Um, Therefore, we won't have to be so reliant on the tip averaging um, just because it, it does tend to fluctuate so often. How has your idea of a good wage changed in the past few years? Um, Definitely, like we've mentioned prior in the show, um, inflation has impacted that concept for me. Um, Just really a matter of wanting to see wages reflect um, the output costs that everybody is dealing with. How have you felt the impacts of inflation so far? Um, it's, it's a struggle. Um, I currently live with my partner and my roommate, um, and granted they do help offset some of the, our bill cost. Um, it's really just a matter of having to constantly make sure that my ducks are in a row and, you know, my money is going (laughs) where it has to. Yeah. When, when you think about the pain points in your budget, what are the specific areas you're most concerned about? Um, definitely rent. Um, food cost is a big one. Um, as well as gas. I live out towards the Okalona area of Louisville, yet I travel 30 minutes to my Heine Brothers location in St. Matthews. Um, so gas, definitely. So how are you stretching those dollars to make them last for the, for the month? Um, just watching my finances really closely, um, making sure that, you know, myself and all of the people I live with can contribute equally. So we're all afloat and comfortable, or at least as comfortable as we can be. How confident are you feeling going into this negotiating period about coming out on the other end with what you need to make life livable for you? Um, I'm feeling very confident. I think that um, winning the election was a big step. Um, It just really solidified that we do have power as workers, and I'm so ready to move towards the next steps. That's Addie Atkins, a barista and union member in Louisville, Kentucky. Addie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Gina, briefly, I'd love to hear what you think about what we just heard there from Addie. Well, I think it is so interesting how many people you hear from these days who say, you know, my 
perceptions of how much I need to earn to really sort of keep up in this economy have very much changed. The reason that's interesting to me is as an economics reporter, you know, A, it's obviously true. It, it is the case that people are paying way more for the everyday necessities that they need to get by. It's also the kind of thing that can keep inflation rising, actually, though. You know, if, if we see a lot of people pushing for and successfully winning big wage increases, it could be the case that those costs get passed along to consumers and we end up in sort of a really unfortunate upward cycle. And so, you know, I think this is a bit of a, a frightening and challenging moment in the economy. Gina, how have workers' wages changed since the pandemic started? So workers' wages have been picking up, and in some industries and in some parts of the income distribution, pretty remarkably, actually. You know, we have seen really solid wage growth in sort of the bottom fourth of the income distribution, um, much faster than normal. The The first quartile, so that bottom quarter, is at something like 7.3% based on the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker. Unfortunately, even that has not been enough to keep up with inflation over the past year. And only some you know, really low-paying industries have seen wage growth that has kept up with inflation. It has mostly been the case that for sort of the average worker in America, wages have fallen behind inflation pretty remarkably in this period, even as they grow at a much faster pace than is normal. And so you know, it's unfortunate because people are taking home more money than they ever have. And in many cases, they're you know, working more hours and getting better jobs and sometimes better benefits, but there's still this sense that you're falling behind. What is the Federal Reserve doing to combat inflation? So the the Federal Reserve has basically one tool to combat inflation. That is interest rates. The way that that works, because I don't actually think this is super intuitive intuitive to people based on, you know, folks I talk to. um, The way that that works is as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, it makes it more expensive for people to borrow money to make big purchases. So, you know, less home buying, less new car buying, less buying on credit cards. And that lowers demand in the economy. It also makes it more expensive to do things like expand a business. And so that slows down the job market because companies aren't expanding. They're not hiring. Their customers aren't buying as much, so they're not hiring. As the job market slows down, wage growth slows down. As wage growth slows down, people have even less money to spend and demand slows further. And so really, it's just this sort of big accelerator where demand falls down. And as demand falls, supply outstrips demand and prices come down. And so that's basically the chain reaction they're trying to set off. Um, as you can probably guess from what everything I just said, it's a pretty painful process. You know, this isn't a fun adjustment. It's a, an adjustment where people get fewer jobs, the jobs they get are less well-paid. You may see unemployment rise. You could see unemployment rise pretty dramatically. You know, some of the more pessimistic people think that this could be a really painful adjustment. And so, you know, that is what the Fed is doing. It is not going to be a costless process, but they think that it's going to be worth it to get inflation back under control. Gina, in just a sentence or two, how do you think low-wage workers will fare in the economy we're heading into? I think that it could be a pretty tough ride. Um, in the sense that you are seeing a situation where the job market is likely to slow pretty markedly. As the job market slows, it's likely that people are going to see who are working are going to see less robust wage gains. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, you could be in a situation where prices still are very, at a very high level, are still increasing at a pretty rapid pace, but pay is falling further and further behind and your opportunities to find new jobs, to find better jobs, those are getting weaker and weaker. And so there could be a pretty tough adjustment period ahead of us. 
With us today was Gina Smilek. She reports on the economy and the Federal Reserve for the New York Times. And Tim Smeeting. He's a professor of public affairs and economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the former director of the Institute for Research on Poverty. Thanks to you both. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations around the country, including WFPL in Louisville, Kentucky. Through the series, we explore Americans' trust in institutions and the health of our democracy. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler with help from Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.